0: thank you to our music team. The children can be dismissed at this time. And let me ask you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. This morning we'll look at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. And then as Mike mentioned, I'll be gone for the next two weeks. And then on Sunday, July 23rd, I'll do my best to... Choose a text and uh, be able to communicate my sincere love and gratitude for you and the time that we've had here together. But this morning, we look at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. As we see here in this passage, a case of mistaken identity. Mark 12, 35 to 37 reads, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we ask for your help to understand it, to apply it, to meditate on it, to take it with us, to live in its reality. We pray, oh God, that you would help us to better understand who Jesus is so that we might better understand who you are, our triune God. We ask for your help in this effort and we pray, Lord that for anyone here who does not rightly recognize who Jesus is, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that you open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. And we all understand, Lord, that even those of us whom you have graciously saved, we still need our eyes opened to see Jesus. So we pray that you would do that very thing today so that our hearts would exult in praise to him. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say together, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a case of mistaken identity. In 1895, British authorities arrested a man named Adolf Beck, outside of his home, for jewelry theft. Because this theft was so similar to many others that had happened, not only recently, but in fact, even as far back as 18 years before, at his trial, Beck was held responsible for those unsolved crimes, along with the one that he was arrested for. He was ultimately charged with 10 misdemeanors and four different felonies. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, yet was released after five years for good behavior. As Adolf Beck enjoyed his freedom for three years, another crime of the exact same nature was committed. The inspector who took the report from the woman who claimed that a man robbed her of her jewelry was familiar with Adolf Beck and was convinced that it must be him once again who had committed that crime. Adolf Beck was then arrested once more. He was put on trial, and although the jury thought him to be guilty, in England it was the judge who would ultimately make the decision. The judge was not so convinced, even though eyewitness testimony in the second case from five different women confirmed that he was indeed the one who robbed them. So the judge, in order to give himself more time to decide the case, held Beck in custody. And 10 days later, after he was being held in custody, a crime of the exact same nature was committed. This time, though, as the man went to pawn the rings that he stole from certain ladies, he was caught and arrested. An inspector named John Kane heard about this new arrest and was already very familiar with Adolf Beck's case. And so he, of course, became curious because it seems as though this same crime is happening, although the man who was supposed to have committed it was locked up in prison. So John Kane went to the cell of this new, uh, this new criminal who was arrested for these, uh, th- this new crime, this new theft, and wouldn't you know it, John Kane, the inspector, discovered that in that cell was a man named John Smith who looked exactly like Adolf Beck so much so that he even dressed just like Adolf Beck This new discovery led to the reality that even though there was witnesses or there was uh, evidence in that original first trial It was ignored and neglected, and this find led to the discovery that, in fact, Adolf Beck had never stolen anything in his life. But the entire time, his identity was mistaken for John Smith's, who continued his crime spree while Adolf Beck served the sentence for crimes he did not commit. The British authorities were responsible for mistaking the identity of Adolf Beck. But the Jewish authorities were responsible for a mistaken identity far worse than that. They thought that Jesus was just some uneducated nobody from the northern territory of Galilee. So you can imagine their dismay when just a few days before our passage, in fact, just the day before our passage, Jesus comes into the temple and he chases out those who are buying and selling. He turns over the tables of the money changers and he condemns the whole system as turning his father's house into a den of robbers. It was no surprise then the very next day after Jesus cleared out the temple that the authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the men who composed the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling class of Israel, it was no surprise then that they confronted Jesus on the question of the authority that he had. Essentially, they said, who gives you the right and what gives you the right to do the things that you're doing? By what authority, they asked him. Are you doing these things? Jesus then stumped them with a question of his own about John the Baptist, a question that they determined that they could not answer because no matter how they answered it, it would prove them to be wrong and Jesus to be right. And so instead of actually answering the question, they just simply said, we don't know. That then led Jesus to tell the parable of the tenants, which the religious leaders quickly understood to be about them. And so they plotted to destroy him. They began to plot to arrest him, just as the Pharisees and the Herodians did back when Jesus healed a man in the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath. This tension against Jesus has been building for quite some time, and now Jesus brings it to a climax in the temple, in the religious leader's very own front yard. So in order to try to arrest him, they first sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to ask him a question about paying taxes, but he slipped out of their trap with his superior wisdom. Because that didn't work, they then sent the Sadducees to ask him a question about the resurrection, but he demonstrated his superior knowledge of scripture and exposed how wrong they were in their thinking. And last but not least, they sent a scribe who, by Mark's account, seems to genuinely be interested in Jesus' answer about the most important commandment, and yet Jesus' answer was so impressive Then Mark 12, verse 34 says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. But the showdown wasn't over. They had asked their questions, and now it was time for Jesus to ask a question. Their questions focused on various issues, political, religious, theological, biblical, but Jesus' question focused in really on their initial questioning of his authority. Jesus' question to them focused on one verse of one psalm, And it was directed to one particular group, the scribes, who were the experts in biblical interpretation. But it wasn't a question only about how to interpret Psalm 110 verse 1. Oh, it was a question about how to interpret Psalm 110 verse 1. However, the implications of that interpretation point to something greater that actually answers their initial question about his authority. The implications of it point to the reality that Jesus is the son of David and also the son of God. Jesus presents... A sort of riddle that, as far as Mark is concerned, no one even dared answer because it left even the scribes, even the experts, scratching their heads because they had built their interpretation of their, their view of the Messiah on a wrong understanding of Scripture. And it wasn't so much that it was wrong because it wasn't right. It was wrong because it was too small. It was wrong because it limited the Messiah to only being a man. But all throughout the gospel, according to Mark, Mark, even from chapter 1, verse 1, has been showing us the declaration that Jesus is a man, but Jesus is also God. And so it's in this question from Jesus, this riddle of sorts, that this morning we discover two glorious identities which belong to Jesus and make him worthy of our worship. You see, when we talk about the identity of Jesus, it's not enough to just give him one name, is it? Oh, he is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And so I'm convinced that as we see this in Jesus's question, it's not that he's questioning their understanding so much as he's questioning the limitations of their understanding. He's not saying the Christ is not the son of David. He's saying the Christ is more than just the son of David. And so as we discover these realities, realities which, You probably are aware of realities which many of us, if not almost all of us, believe in, but realities that are still questioned today when you get a little phone call from someone who says they're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Or when you're, like I was a month ago, minding your own business, cutting your grass, and someone walks up your driveway... And you immediately recognize them because they always wear those strange name tags. And they want to talk to you about Jesus. You see, this is not just a question of mistaken identity in Jesus' day. The reality is Jesus' identity is still mistaken today. And so as we discover this reality, as we look once again to the truth that Jesus is the son of David and the son of God, that Jesus is, as the confession says, truly man and truly God, we will be reminded of these and we will be once again grounded in the rich soil of the reality of who Jesus is. It will give us confidence. It will encourage our hearts. It will lead us to stand firm In the faith. And so let's look then at these two glorious identities that belong to Jesus. The first one we see in verse 35, it comes to us in Jesus' question about the scribes' interpretation of Psalm 110, verse 1, and it is this Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of David. Verse 35 once again says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? You notice they're still in the temple. And this conversation or this turn in the conversation, if you can call it a conversation, more like debate, disagreement, happens right on the heels of the last three questions. This is one long day, one long discussion, one long dialogue, one long debate that began with the question of Jesus' authority. And so Jesus has silenced his critics. No one knows what to say to him anymore. And so right there, notice that Mark emphasizes where it happens. He wants to remind you where Jesus is. He's in the temple. And he wants to remind you what Jesus is doing, the very thing that he came to do all throughout his ministry, as Mark so clearly highlights, he's teaching. He's teaching on his home field, although they don't recognize it as his home field. They think it's theirs. So Jesus takes it to them right where they think they are seated in power. It's his temple and so he's teaching them in the temple and in his teaching he asks them a question and you'll notice that the question focuses in on the scribes themselves and the reason for that as we have already highlighted the reason for that was because if you had a biblical interpretation question if you had a question about the scriptures it was the scribes that you would go to The next passage makes it clear that the scribes dressed themselves in a certain way in order to distinguish themselves from everyone else in Israel. You knew when a scribe was coming down the road. You knew when you saw a scribe in the temple. It was almost kind of like, you know how the Catholic priests wear that little, funny little tic-tac thing on there? I don't know what it's called. It's bigger than a tic-tac, but you know, it's maybe like, Collar, yeah, that's that's a fancy term, right? Collar. It's maybe like 20 Tic Tacs glued together or something like that. It's, It's big. It's like that. You see that in the grocery store or somewhere, you immediately know that's a Catholic priest. That was how the scribes would dress. You would see them, you would immediately know that's a scribe. And if you had a question about the scriptures, if you were bold enough to approach the prideful scribes, then you would go to the scribes if you really wanted to know what the Bible taught, you would go to the scribes. And so as Jesus clearly emphasizes and teaches what the Bible really teaches, he focuses his question on the teachers of Israel. He's going straight to the top. If he can topple the interpretation of the scribes, then he topples their interpretation Understanding completely, and so he asks, "How is it that the scribes can say that the Christ is the Son of David?" That's a good question. It's a very good question. It's not a question, as the rest of this emphasizes and highlights for us. It's not a question that means that the Christ, the Messiah, is not the Son of David but it's a question rather that emphasizes their understanding in that day of the son of David. They thought that the son of David, the Christ, would be only a man, only a human being. Let's look, uh, let's do a little flyover, if you will, of their Old Testament Understanding of this. To do that, we have to start in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're concerned about you know, getting lost as you turn, you flip the pages of your Bible, feel free to just write these references down. We're going to hit about six of them. Just a quick flyover. I want to I build for you the biblical evidence for their understanding. So Jesus is not saying you're wrong that the son of David is the son of David, that the Christ is the son of David. But what he wants to do is expand their view on that. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have what's called the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God made with David ultimately that promised that there would be a A son of David, a man from the line of David who would ultimately sit on the throne of Israel and his reign would be forever. So let's begin reading 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, let me just, add a little footnote here God now goes to speak directly about Solomon but this prophecy goes beyond Solomon so you need to understand that because God's about to say when he commits sin the Messiah the Christ does not commit sin but Solomon certainly committed sin but the whole point is every one of David's sons dies except for the son of David who went into the grave and came back out. So continuing on in verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So we have there then the Davidic covenant, the basis for the scribes' understanding of the son of David, the basis for all Israel's hope in the son of David, the one whom God promised to give his people peace from their enemies, to bring them into a land of peace so that wars would cease Does that sound familiar to you? It's the Messiah. So this is the basis of their understanding. Come with me then to Psalm 89 as we continue our jet tour of a biblical understanding of the Son of David. Psalm 89. And this is not, these are not the only passages we could go to, I just realize that if we kept going to them we wouldn't have time for anything else psalm 89 psalm 89 first look at verses 3 and 4 and then we'll drop down to verse 19 psalm 89 3 and 4 you have said i have made a covenant with my chosen one i have sworn to david my servant I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations, Selah. So you see the Davidic covenant and the hope of a son of David still there. Drop down to verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one or godly ones and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him my arm also shall strengthen him the enemy shall not outwit him and what have we seen going on in the temple has the enemy outwitted him the wicked shall not humble him has the enemy has the wicked in the temple humbled him? I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." My steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. Now go to Psalm 132. Psalm 132 verses 11 and 12 once again affirm the reality of the promise of God to David that a son would come. Psalm 132, 11 and 12, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. A son from David's own body And yet, the stipulation is that the sons must keep his covenant, God's covenant, and keep his testimonies. And that's how God would ensure that he would be on the throne and that everyone after him would also reign with him. Does that sound familiar? Who is the only son of David that has kept the testimonies of God? Jesus. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We're, we're beginning to get into the prophets now and their interpretation of this. We're almost done. Isaiah 11, we're just going to read verse 1 of Isaiah 11, just to see, even Isaiah picks this up, though this is certainly not the only place Isaiah does. Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, how do you end up with a stump of a tree? The tree gets cut down, right? So the prophet is saying, from that cut down stump, a shoot will pop out. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Now go with me to Jeremiah, and this will be the last prophet that we're in. Jeremiah 32, excuse me, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verse five. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Then go to Jeremiah 33. This will be our last passage. Are you seeing why it was that the scribes said that the Christ was the son of David? Because that's what the Bible says. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord Is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. In other words, if you can make the sun stop coming up and going back down, then I'll break my covenant with David, which is a poetic way of saying, I've promised it, I'm going to do it. So back to this interaction with Jesus and the scribes in Mark chapter 12. You can see then why it's a good question. And you can see then why they taught that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a man from the body of David, a son, to sit on David's throne, right? It makes perfect sense. But what they failed to understand is that in order for that promise to be fulfilled and in order for the son of David to do everything that God intended for him to do, he had to be more than a man. Because what had happened to every other son of David, they died. So how can a sinner who dies sit on the throne forever? He can't. That's why you need a sinless son of David who died and got back up. So Jesus is taking them to task on their interpretation of scripture. What the scribes said about the Christ was biblical. It just wasn't biblical enough. The Christ really is the son of David, but he's he's more than just the son of David. He's not only the son of David, he's the very son of God. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to get across to them. That even though they have opposed him, even though they've questioned his authority, even though they have mistaken his identity, he's gracious and he's merciful to give them yet another opportunity to recognize him just like blind Bartimaeus and say, son of David, have mercy on me, and then to get up and to follow him. So the first glorious reality about the identity of Jesus is that Jesus is the son of God. And the second is in the rest of Jesus's questions. Verses 36 to 37, we see that Jesus is the son of David, but Jesus is also the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Notice in order to defend his position and in order to get on the scribes playing field, Jesus quotes the scriptures. Specifically, he quotes what we read earlier, Psalm 110, verse 1, which just so happens to be the most quoted psalm, the most quoted messianic psalm in the New Testament. Not Psalm 23, not Psalm 22, Psalm 110. The prophets, uh, excuse me, the apostles kept coming back to Psalm 110 to show who Jesus is. So Jesus asks the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then Jesus continues to explain the scriptures. He says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? You can imagine You could hear a pin drop in the temple. Hundreds of thousands of people, and yet this question silences every one of them. It's a good question, isn't it? You'll notice a few things, three specifically. First of all, in order to question and even undermine the interpretation of the scribes, what does Jesus do? He appeals to Scripture. This is God in the flesh, who is the one who writes Scripture. He could have just said, Scribes, you're wrong. This is what I meant when I said this. But instead, what does he do? He appeals to the Scriptures. You remember what he did when Satan tempted him in the wilderness? He appealed to the scriptures. Why? Because he affirms the authority of the scriptures. Why? Because the true son of David needed to be one that kept perfectly the testimonies and the precepts of God found in the scriptures. had he not appealed to the scriptures, then that would have given them evidence to know he was not the son of David and he was certainly not the Christ. But instead he appeals to the authority of the scriptures. Not only does he appeal to the authority of the scriptures by citing the scriptures, but he also affirms the the uh, inspiration of the scriptures. Notice he says, who does he, who does he credit with writing Psalm 110 even though You'll read various commentaries and they'll say, well, Psalms of David weren't really written by David. It's a category of a psalm. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, David wrote it. Mic drop. Say, sorry, smart people with a bunch of letters after your name. Jesus disagrees with your interpretation that the Psalms were not written by David. So Jesus affirms the human writer, David, but notice what he says about David. How does David say what he says in Psalm 110? He says it in or by the Holy Spirit. It's not as though the Holy Spirit sort of entered into the body of David and took him over and David became a, a robot and his, his hand started moving with a pen all by itself. No, it's that the Holy Spirit was already in David as the anointed king, and the Holy Spirit carried him along and led him and used his personality and used his words to write divine-inspired scripture. And do you know who knew that? David knew that. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, some of David's last words, David affirms this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, someone comes around saying that today, and we've got some problems. We say, "Uh, yeah, right, buddy. Unless you're reading this, you can take a hike. I got something better. But David says, fully acknowledging the reality that he knew he was an author of Scripture. He knew that what he was writing was not just from him, but was the words of the Holy Spirit himself. And Peter affirms this when he defines for us inspiration in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says there in verses 20 and 21, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus defines and affirms the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. If Jesus says this is God's book, then we can be 100% confident that this is God's book. And as one pastor theologian, Dale Ralph Davis says, when we read the words of God, when we read our Bibles, the scriptures are warm with the breath of God. It's not just that God spoke at one time, but every time this is read, that's God speaking. So Jesus affirms the inspiration of the scriptures. And then you'll notice Jesus cites the details of the scriptures. Jesus' question focuses in on how David can say, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice David says, how can David call him Lord? Lord. That might be a question that kind of trips us up a little bit, but think about it this way. There is never one time in my life that I have called my son, Matthew, Lord. When he asks for water, I don't say, yes, my Lord. I say something like, sure, buddy. There is no way... In ancient Israel, in that culture, that a king would call his son his Lord. Notice, David doesn't just say, the Lord says to the Lord. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. David acknowledges that this one that Yahweh speaks to, the father speaking to the son, David is acknowledging that this one that Yahweh speaks to is his very own authority, is his very own Lord. And that's what Jesus' question centers on. Who in the world, what father in their right mind would call their son their Lord? The scribes never saw that before, apparently. Do you know what this shows us, amongst other things? This shows us that Jesus was an expository preacher. And that's not even a joke, why do we preach the way we preach? Why do we study the Bible the way we study the Bible? Because that's how Jesus did. That's why. Why do we pay attention to the details of the words? It's not because we're Bible nerds, although I'll gladly take that. It's because we know that words matter. We've seen Jesus do this before when he defeated the, the Sadducees. He says, You fools. The Lord doesn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And once again, Jesus bases his argument on the text of scripture and the details that that text shows. And it's such a good question that no one can answer it. I have to wonder if that scribe that Jesus was just talking with might have left, been left scratching his head going, huh, how come I never saw that? What is Jesus doing? Well, he's showing us that David the prophet understood that the Christ, the Messiah, the one that Yahweh speaks to, the one that Yahweh will subject all things to, he understands that that one, the Christ, will be his very own Lord. He understands that he, the king of Israel, who has all authority at that time, really all authority in the world, because in David's reign, Israel was the most powerful kingdom. And everybody knew it. You mess with David, you're going down. And yet, the most powerful king in the world understood that there's one to whom he is subject. So Jesus' question exposes the reality that David was not speaking only about a son, but David was speaking about God. You see, the scribes' view that uh, that that the Christ was only the son of David was right, but it was too small. You remember, Peter has already confessed in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Christ, And so the disciples, when Jesus asked this question, they know what he's doing. Jesus is not asking them only about the identity of the Christ. Jesus is asking them, who do you say I am? And if I'm anything less than God, why does David call me his Lord? Jesus is absolutely not undermining the truth that he is the son of David. Jesus is highlighting the truth that Mark has already told us from verse 1 of his gospel. That this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. How else could he have authority over Satan and his demons? Can a man do that? How else could he have the authority to heal people of their sicknesses and even to raise up Jairus' daughter from the dead? Can a man do that? How else could he have authority of all things to forgive sins? Can a man do that? how else could he have the authority to bend nature to his will by calming the storm and walking on the water? Can a man do that? The answer is yes. The man, Christ Jesus, who is more than just a man. And this is what the apostles were absolutely convinced of. This is why they laid their life on the line. Listen to how Paul opens up the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The reality that Jesus is the Son of God is stunningly glorious for us Christians. John clearly explains the deity of Jesus Christ in all of his writings. But you remember John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten God from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, back in verse 29 of Mark chapter 12, has just affirmed that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. What is Jesus now saying? He's saying he is one with the Father. Our God is one in three. John also tells us something truly amazing about Jesus in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The only begotten God. In the bosom or in the side of the father. Now you've got two who are called God. And one is in the bosom, in the side of the father. And you'll notice that John doesn't say he was in the bosom of the father. But John says he is and he always is in the bosom of the father. You might be thinking to yourself well that's, that's cool for Jesus but Christian here's one of a million plus reasons why that's such good news. Because if you're a Christian then who are you in? You're in Jesus. And if Jesus is in the bosom of the Father and you're in Jesus where are you? in Jesus, safely tucked into the bosom of the Father. And this is what John means in 1 John 1.3 when he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The reality that Jesus is the Son of God means that Jesus is God, means that Jesus is in the Father, means that Jesus has fellowship with the Father. And the reality of what happens to you when you repent of your sins and you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are now in that very same fellowship. And, dear friend, You can never get out of it. And no one can ever take you from it. The way that John 17 says, the way that the Father has loved the Son, you now are loved by the Father in that very same way. How much does the Father love the Son? I can't even begin to comprehend how much the Father loves the Son. Which means, Christian, you can't begin to comprehend how much God loves you now that you are in the Son. And here's the best part it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on if you have a good day and you read your Bible and you pray and you share the gospel. It doesn't matter about anything about you because it's all about the Son and the Father's love for the Son. So let me ask you, do you know that love? Are you in the Son and therefore in the Father? Because the reality is when we clear our blurry vision and we bring ourselves into our right minds, when we think about that, how could we ever have a bad day? How could we ever grumble and complain? And I'll say that as the one first guilty of those things. So Jesus teaches in his question. He teaches that he certainly is the son of David. But he teaches that it's even better than that. Jesus is the sovereign king and ruler of all, but it's even better than that. He's also the gracious and merciful savior that would have you even now if you would come to him. He would have had the scribes even then if they would have come to him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, anyone even then if they would come to him. And by his grace we know that later on some of them did. And so in this passage we see these two glorious identities which belong to Jesus and make him worthy of our worship. So I ask you, does this truth about Jesus make your heart burst within you? Because if it doesn't, then I'm afraid you don't understand it. For the Christian, at the very least, this should remind us that our Jesus is both sovereign King and merciful Savior. And for the non-Christian, this informs us, this, this informs you that the one whom you are rejecting is the sovereign king and yet gracious savior. And it tells you that even now, if you would just lay down your arms If you would just repent of your sin, if you would just stop trying to live for yourself, by yourself, in your own way, that the Lord Jesus Christ would open his arms wide to you. The very same one who says, come to me, all who are weary and I will give you rest. He's the only one who can give you rest, friend. So rest. Stop fighting and rest. These two identities of Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of David, remind us that our Lord is truly God and truly man. And it instructs us to know that is exactly what we needed. That there is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. When this truth was challenged, the early church got together And declared as the true church in the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom are all things made. And later on again, when heretics assaulted the deity of Jesus Christ, the godness of Jesus Christ, the Athanasian Creed states, The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co eternal and co equal with each other. So, in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity, anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. Jesus is both the son of David, a man from the body of David to sit on the throne of David, and he is the son of God, the second person of the trinity who took on flesh for us And this is the Jesus whom we remember at the Lord's table.